Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 124. This episode is entitled Poodle Clipping as an Olympic Sport. In a chilling turn of events, some taxi drivers in Japan are claiming to have picked up ghost passengers in the aftermath of the tsunami that devastated the nation in March 2011. As many as seven of the 100 drivers interviewed by Yukakudo, a student of sociology at Tohoku, admitted to having encountered phantom fares. Kudo conducted the interviews as part of her graduation thesis. Travelling to the coastal town of Ishinomaki every week for a year to speak to taxi drivers waiting for fares. She asked over 100 drivers the same question. Did you have any unusual experiences after the disaster? Many of them ignored her. Some even got angry. But seven drivers agreed to describe their strange encounters. One driver recounted a particularly unsettling story. In the summer of 2011, a woman dressed in a coat climbed into her taxi near Ishinomaki Station. She said, Please go to the Mian Mihama Station. When he pointed out there was nothing left standing in the district, she asked him in a shivering voice, Have I died? The driver immediately turned around, only to find the back seat empty. Another driver recalled how a young man who looked to be in his twenties got into his taxi. When the driver looked in the rearview mirror for directions, the man kept pointing towards the front. The driver then asked for a destination, to which he replied, Hioriyama, mountain. When the taxi reached the area, the man had disappeared from the taxi. It's easy to dismiss these stories as hallucinations or imaginations, but the driver's logs are proof that they really might have occurred. When these ghosts got into their cabs, the drivers started the meter, which is recorded. So even though these passengers disappeared during the ride, they were still counted as clients. The drivers then had to pay their fares out of their own pockets. Some of the drivers even wrote down their experiences in their logs. All these phantom travellers were described to be young, which compels Kudo to believe that they were indeed victims of the 2011 tsunami. Young people feel strongly chagrined at their deaths when they cannot meet people they love, she said. As they want to convey their bitterness, they may have chosen taxis, which are like private rooms as a medium to do so. Interestingly, none of the drivers reported feeling any fear, instead holding their special passengers in reverence. Having lost loved ones in the disaster themselves, they perceived the encounters as a spiritual experience, meant to be remembered and cherished forever. It is not strange to see a ghost here, a driver said. If I encounter a ghost again, I will accept it as my passenger. Kudo herself was moved by the interviews. 
I learned that the death of each victim carries importance, she said. I want to convey that to other people. According to official records, over 15,000 people died during the magnitude 9 earthquake that lasted for six minutes and triggered a 133-foot-high tsunami that swept six miles inland. Numerous sightings of ghosts and spectral figures have been reported in residential districts in the affected areas in the aftermath of the disaster. That article came from the oddityscentral.com website and it was written by Sumitra. And if you visit the link in the show notes at the origins.info podcast website, you will see there's a couple of photographs and a short video to go with this article. In 1950, physicist Enrico Fermi raised a very important question about the universe and the existence of extraterrestrial life. Given the size and age of the universe, he said, and the statistical probability of life emerging in other solar systems, why is it that humanity has not seen any indications of intelligent life in the cosmos? This query, known as the Fermi Paradox, continues to haunt us to this day. From the businessinsider.com A research team has an unsettling explanation for why we haven't found aliens. And this is written by Matt Williams. If there are indeed billions of star systems in our galaxy and the conditions needed for life are not so rare, then where are all the aliens? According to a recent paper by researchers at Australian National University's Research School of Earth Scientists, the answer may be simple. They're all dead. In what the research team calls the Gaian bottleneck, the solution to this paradox may be that life is so fragile that most of it simply doesn't make it. To put this into perspective, let's first consider some of the numbers. As of the writing of this article, scientists have discovered 2,049 planets in 1,297 planetary systems, including 507 with multiple planets. In addition, a report issued in 2013 by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the USA indicated that, based on Kepler mission data, there could be as many as 40 billion Earth-sized planets orbiting in the habitable zones of sun-like stars and red dwarfs within the Milky Way, and that 11 billion of these may be orbiting sun-like stars. So, really, there should be no shortage of alien civilizations out there. And given that some scientists estimate that our galaxy is over 13 billion years old, there has been no shortage of time for some of that life to evolve and create the necessary technology to reach out and find us. But according to Dr Aditya Chopra, the lead author of the ANU paper, one needs to take into account that the evolutionary process is filled with its share of hurdles. Earth's life is fragile 
So we believe it rarely evolves quickly enough to survive, he says. Most early planetary environments are unstable. To produce a habitable planet, life forms need to regulate greenhouse gases, such as water and carbon dioxide, to keep surface temperatures stable. Consider our solar system. We all know Earth has the right elements to give rise to life as we know it. It sits within the Sun's so-called Goldilocks zone, a.k.a. habitable zone. It has liquid water on its surface, an atmosphere, a magnetosphere to protect this atmosphere and ensure that life on the surface isn't exposed to too much radiation. As such, Earth is the only place in our solar system where life is known to thrive. But what about Venus and Mars? Both of these planets sit within the Goldilocks zone and might have had microbial life on them at one time. But roughly three billion years ago, when life on Earth was beginning to convert the Earth's primordial atmosphere by producing oxygen, Venus and Mars each underwent cataclysmic change. Whereas Venus experienced a runaway greenhouse effect and became the hot, hostile world it is today, Mars lost its atmosphere and surface water and became the cold, desiccated place it is today. So, while Earth's microbial life played a key role in stabilising our environment, any life forms on Venus and Mars would have been wiped out by the sudden temperature extremes. In other words, when considering the likelihood of life in the cosmos, we need to look back beyond the mere statistics and consider whether it may have come down to an emergence bottleneck. Essentially, those planets where life forms fail to emerge quickly enough, thus stabilising the planet and paving the way for more life, will be doomed to remain uninhabited. In their report, The Case for a Gaian Bottleneck, The Biology of Habitability, which appears in the first issue of Astrobiology for 2016, Chopra and his associates summarise their argument as follows. If life emerges on a planet... It only rarely evolves quickly enough to regulate greenhouse gases and albedo, thereby maintaining surface temperatures compatible with liquid water and habitability. Such a guy and bottleneck suggests that 1. Extinction is the cosmic default for most life that has ever emerged on the surfaces of wet rocky planets in the universe, and 2. Rocky planets need to be inhabited to remain Habitable. While potentially depressing, this theory does offer a resolution to the Fermi paradox. Given the sheer number of warm, wet terrestrial planets in the Milky Way galaxy, there ought to be at least a few thousand civilizations kicking around. And of those, surely there are a few that have climbed their way up the Kardashev scale and built something like a Dyson sphere, or at least some flying saucers. And yet, not only have we not detected any signs of life in other solar systems, but the search for extraterrestrial intelligence hasn't detected any radio waves from other star systems since its inception. The only explanations for this are that either life is far more rare than we think, or we aren't looking in the right places. If life is indeed so rare... An emergence bottleneck may be why life has been so hard to find. But if we simply aren't looking in the right places, it means our methodology needs to change. 
So far, all of our searches have been for the low-hanging fruit of alien life, looking for signs of it on warm, watery planets like our own. Perhaps life does exist out there, but in more complex and exotic forms that we have yet to consider. Or, as is often suggested, is it possible that extraterrestrial life is taking great pains to avoid us? Regardless, Fermi's paradox has endured for over 50 years, and it will continue to endure until such time that we can make contact with an extraterrestrial civilization. In the meantime, all we can do is speculate. To quote Arthur C. Clarke, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe, or we are not. And both are equally terrifying. And from the todayifoundout.com website, Charlie Kay asks, Where did the expression, it ain't over till the fat lady sings, come from? You might think the expression, the opera ain't over until the fat lady sings, derives from some stereotypical fat lady singing to close out operas. In particular, some have theorised that the expression in question derives from the last part of Richard Wagner's The Ring of Nibelung, Twilight of the Gods, where the character of the Valkyrie Brunhilde is typically played by a rather plump woman who closes out the lengthy opera via a near 20-minute aria. But none of this is correct. The exact expression in question is actually a relatively recent invention, tracing its origin to the 1970s. It is commonly credited to Dan Cook, a sports broadcaster from San Antonio, Texas. He was reporting on a playoff game between his hometown Spurs and the Washington Bullets, now the Wizards, in 1978, in which the Spurs were down three games to one. Seemingly off the cuff, Cook stated... The opera ain't over till the fat lady sings. But this also is not the true origin of the exact phrase. For that we have to go back to 1976, when Ralph Carpenter was giving a report on the Dallas Morning News in March of that year. Despite his obvious allegiance to the Red Raiders, Texas Tech Sports Information Director Ralph Carpenter was the picture of professional objectivity when the Aggies rallied for a 72-72 tie late in the SWC Tournament Finals. Hey Ralph, said Bill Morgan, Southwest Conference Information Director, this is going to be a tight one after all. Right, said Ralph. The opera ain't over until the fat lady sings. So, while Cook didn't actually coin the phrase, his utterance did result in its popularisation via inspiring Bullets coach Dick Motter to borrow the phrase and repeat it frequently during their playoff run that year as a sort of rallying cry against overconfidence. Motter even had T-shirts made with the expression on it. 
At this point, you might be wondering if Carpenter really came up with the phrase off the cuff in 1976. Was he perhaps an opera aficionado and simply referencing something he observed in various operas? It doesn't appear so. You see, the opera ain't over till the fat lady sings. It's just a modern version of a much older southern expression, with the family of expression going all the way back to at least the 1870s. For instance, in the October 17, 1872 edition of the Daily Picayune, it states, As long as the organ is playing, church is not out. Not literally referring to church getting out, this saying has the same common usage as the opera, fat lady expression, simply saying, it ain't over yet, or, to use a similar phrase, don't count your chickens until they're hatched. In 1894, another example is seen expressing the same sentiment in a report from the August 17 edition of the Fort Worth Gazette. The impression is still strong among railroad passenger agents that there will be further reductions in the rate to the Washington encampment of the Knights of Pythias. Church is never out till the people get through singing, said one of them this morning, and all of them talk as if they understood the language of this parable. In yet another instance, this time in 1896, reported in the New York Tribune, one Chauncey M. Depew is asked, Do you think the governor still has a chance? Referring to Levi P. Morton seeking a presidential nomination, to which he responds, While there is life, there is hope. It doesn't do to count on anything as a certainty until all is over. Church is never out until they stop singing. I admit that Major McKinley looks like the winner, but I am with Morton as long as he is to be considered as a candidate. The expression became relatively common from here, particularly in the southern United States, and fast-forwarding a bit through history is even known to have been used by various sports broadcasters in the 1970s. For instance, in 1974... Pioneering female sportscaster Lee Arthur noted while broadcasting on KDKA Pittsburgh during a Rangers Penguins hockey match. Back in Indiana, we used to say, The church ain't over till the singing's through. Two years later, in 1976, it was reported in the Baltimore Sun that the captain of the Baltimore Clippers team, Fred Speck, said of his team's chances, Church isn't over until the choir stops singing. Anything can happen. That same year, in a little obscure work called Southern Words and Sayings, the first documented instance of incorporating fat lady to the phrase occurred where it states, Church ain't out till the fat lady sings. Given the nature of this work, it can be assumed that this variation was at least reasonably well known in certain parts of the South previous to this documented instance. It has also been claimed, though I couldn't find any documented evidence, that another common variation at the times was, it ain't over till the fat lady sings the blues. From this, it would seem likely that Carpenter's real contribution, if any, to the sentiment was simply substituting church with opera, using the already established fat lady sings variation of the phrase. Two years later, Dan Cook and then Dick Motter would borrow the phrase, popularising the opera version with the masses, and the rest, as they say, is history.
The church is considered a sanctuary and place of comfort for many people. To some it might seem inconceivable that bad things could happen there. However, churches have been the sites of some truly unusual, unsolved mysteries, including murders, disappearances, supernatural events and even unexplained acts of divine intervention. From the listverse.com A story by Robin Warder Ten strange church mysteries that are still unsolved. Number 10. The Mysterious Suicide of William L. Toomey On December 4, 1982, a heavily suntanned stranger entered the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Boise, Idaho. He appeared to be in his early 40s and seemed to be waiting for a turn in the confessional, which was currently occupied. This man would soon be found dead on the floor. It was later determined that he had swallowed a cyanide capsule. He had no identification, but $1,900 was found in his possession, along with a note which stated that the money should be used for his burial. The note was signed William L. Toomey, but it seemed unlikely that this was his real name, since William L. Toomey was the name of a company that manufactured priest garb. All attempts to determine the stranger's identity led nowhere, but there is one unsettling theory about his suicide. On December 21, 1981, a Catholic priest named Father Patrick Ryan was murdered at a motel in Odessa, Texas. He was found naked with his hands tied behind his back. The previous night, Father Ryan had a sexual encounter with a suspect named James Harry Rayos. After Rayos called the police with a drunken confession, he was convicted of Ryan's murder and served 20 years before being paroled. However, Rayos later recanted his confession, and the evidence shows that he almost certainly could not have been in Odessa that night. This evidence is bolstered by the similar murder of a holy man committed the next year. In November 1982, another Catholic priest, Father Benjamin Carrier, was murdered at a motel in Yuma, Arizona. Like Father Ryan, he was found naked with his hands tied behind his back. Since William L. Toomey wore a distinctive belt buckle, which was traced back to an Arizona gift shop, some have speculated that he was responsible for the murders of both priests. It's possible that he intended to die in the confessional after being absolved of his sins, but miscalculated how long it would take for the cyanide to kill him. Number 9. The Disappearance of Father Henrik Borinsky after leaving his native Poland and moving to Bradford, England, Father Borinsky became the Catholic chaplain for the community's 1,500 Polish residents. Borinsky had been brought in to replace another Polish priest, Canon Bolslaw Martinellis, who had fallen out of favour with the community and was more than a little bitter about it. Father Borinsky had served as chaplain for 10 months when he received a mysterious call on the evening of July 13, 1953. The conversation took place in Polish, 
but Borinsky's landlady overheard him finish the call with the words, All right, I go. Borinsky then exited his residence, leaving all his belongings behind and was never seen again. At the time, many of Bradford's Polish residents were refugees who had fled their communist country. Spies from the Polish secret police were believed to frequent the area, and Father Borinsky was known to be very outspoken about his anti-communist views. Rumours began to circulate that Canon Martinellis was angry about Borinsky taking his position and helped communist agents lure Borinsky out of his house to be kidnapped and murdered. Shortly before his disappearance, Borinsky allegedly received a phone call from Martinellis asking Borinsky to meet him at his house. But Martinellis denied the call ever took place. One month later, Martinellis claimed he was attacked in his home by two men who ordered him to keep quiet about Borinsky's disappearance. Martinellis died of a heart attack two years later, and to this day, Father Borinsky's disappearance remains unsolved. Number 8. The Ghost of St Mark's Episcopal Church St Mark's Episcopal Church, built in 1868, is considered an historical landmark in Cheyenne, Wyoming. It's also rumoured to be haunted, and its alleged resident ghost has a bizarre origin story. In 1886, plans were made to construct a new tower for the church. Two Swedish stonemasons were hired for the job. But they both mysteriously disappeared before the tower was finished. Because of this setback, the tower went unfinished until 1927. The problem was the unexplained eerie happenings that started to occur inside the church along with the sightings of a mysterious ghostly figure. Whenever construction was planned on the tower, workers often became too frightened to finish the job. The workmen were even granted permission to build a private isolated room to accommodate their ghostly friend. Decades later, Reverend Eugene Todd was serving as pastor at St Mark's when he received a surprise explanation for these supernatural occurrences. He had been summoned to a nursing home in Denver, where an elderly dying patient had requested confession with him. The man claimed he was one of the two Swedish stonemasons who had mysteriously vanished while working on the church many years ago. Apparently the other stonemason had accidentally fallen to his death in the unfinished bell tower. His partner was terrified that he would be blamed for the death, so he decided to entomb the body under cement inside an unfinished wall section before fleeing the area. Although the missing stonemason's body has never been found, many people found the old man's story credible and believe that the stonemason's ghost haunts the church. Number 7. The Murder of Father Alfred Kunz On March 4, 1998, the small community of Dane, Wisconsin, was shocked to learn that Father Alfred Kunz was murdered. The 67-year-old priest, who had served St Michael's Catholic Church for 32 years, was found inside the church's parochial school with his throat slashed. 
The murder has been the subject of an extensive investigation ever since, and a plethora of unconfirmed theories surrounds his death. One of the most outrageous claims is that he was murdered by a group of angry Satanists. Kunz frequently collaborated on church matters with Malachi Martin, a known exorcist who has published numerous books on the subject. Martin claimed that in the weeks prior to his murder, Kunz was preparing to form an exorcism on a Wisconsin man who was believed to be demonically possessed and expressed concern that his life was in danger. Martin believes that Kunz's manner of death shows signs of having been performed by devil worshippers. Another controversial rumour is that Father Kunz was engaged in sexual affairs with some of his female parishioners and may have been murdered by a jealous lover. Despite all these different theories, the Dane County Sheriff's Office claims to have a prime suspect. Unfortunately, he left town shortly after the crime and police currently do not have sufficient evidence to charge him. As such, Father Kunz's death remains a bizarre, unsolved murder. Number 6. The Papua New Guinea UFO Sightings In April 1959, a respected Anglican priest named Father William Gill was working as a missionary in the village of Boyanai in Papua New Guinea when he saw a strange light travelling across a distant mountain. This same light reappeared on the evening of June 26. But this time Father Gill was standing outside his mission alongside many other witnesses. As the light moved closer to them, it became apparent that it was a large disc-shaped object which appeared to have four large legs beneath it. The witnesses also discerned what appeared to be four alien figures moving around on the object's upper deck. The strange craft remained in the vicinity for 45 minutes before it disappeared. But when it returned an hour later, it was accompanied by more bright flying objects. After hovering over the area for four hours, the objects disappeared again but the strange craft and two smaller flying objects returned to the village yet again on the following evening. This time, Father Gill and one of his companions decided to wave at the alien figures on the craft's deck. Amazingly, the figures waved back. The next night, a total of eight UFOs showed up to the village, but these were the last that would be seen. Before the objects disappeared, a large metallic banging sound was heard on the mission's roof, but no sign of any damage could be found. This story was recounted by over three dozen witnesses, including Father Gill, and remains one of the most credible UFO sightings in history. Number 5. The Murders of Harold and Thelma Swain in 1985, Harold Swain was the deacon of the Rising Daughter Baptist Church in Waverley, Georgia. On the evening of March 11, a mysterious stranger arrived during a Bible study session at the church. When Harold met the stranger in the vestibule, the man pulled out a gun and shot him several times. Harold's wife Thelma ran in the room to help, but the killer shot her to death as well. The man fled the scene leaving only a pair of eyeglasses behind. 
In 2000, a suspect named Dennis Perry was convicted of murdering the Swains and given two consecutive life sentences. Perry had allegedly threatened to kill Harold two weeks before the crime, but the evidence suggests that he may be innocent. At the time the murders took place, Perry claimed that he was at work in Atlanta six hours away, so it seems physically impossible for him to have committed the crime. A witness who saw the shooter pointed the police towards another suspect named Donnie Barentine, who allegedly later bragged about murdering the Swains at a party. The police also lost several key pieces of evidence, including the killer's eyeglasses, which went missing during the filming of a segment for Unsolved Mysteries. Since Perry had perfect vision and did not wear glasses, this piece of evidence could have exonerated him. However, in order to avoid the death penalty, Perry waived his right to appeal, so he remains incarcerated, while the real killer might still be out there. Number 4. The Abandonment of Baby Jacob Gerard Following Sunday service on the morning of February 27, 1994, the Congregation of the Holy Counselor Lutheran Church in Vernon, New Jersey, made a shocking discovery. The body of a newborn baby boy lying in the snow outside one of the church's windows. The unidentified child weighed approximately three kilograms and his naked body was wrapped in a thin blanket. Unfortunately, the infant was frozen solid, so an autopsy could not be performed until the body thawed three days later. The child was likely placed outside the church sometime during the day and died of hypothermia and exposure in freezing temperatures. The umbilical cord was still attached to the child's body, but looks as if it's been torn rather than cut suggesting he wasn't born at a hospital. The church held a memorial service for the unidentified child and buried him behind the church in North Hardiston Cemetery. The biblical story of Jacob happened to be the subject of their sermon on the morning he was found, and St. Gerard is the Roman Catholic patron saint of newborn children. So they named the child Jacob Gerard. Since baby Jacob appeared to be perfectly healthy before his abandonment, the case was classified as a homicide. DNA was taken from his blanket in an attempt to determine who was responsible for his death. But 20 years later, Jacob Jerob remains unidentified. 3. The Rothwell Bone Crypt During the 13th century, Holy Trinity Church is a medieval landmark in the town of Rothwell, England. However, beneath the church is a charnel chapel containing one of the creepiest sights ever found inside a place of worship. An entire room stacked with human bones. Known as the Bone Crypt, the room is filled with the unidentified skeletal remains of approximately 1,500 individuals. At one point, the room was sealed up but legend has it that in 1700, a gravedigger working inside the church accidentally fell through the floor. The discovery of the hidden room allegedly drove him insane. The bones were eventually separated and organised onto shelves, and the bone crypt has since become a popular tourist attraction in the area. Intriguingly, 
No one knows the origin of these bones. One prevalent theory is that the remains belong to victims of a plague. Another claims that they were soldiers who were killed during the nearby Battle of Naseby in 1645. It's also possible that many of the individuals were originally buried in the church graveyard but had to be moved to a new location. Sometime during the 16th century, the adjacent Jesus Hospital was built over a burial ground, so the remains might have been dug up and stored in the chapel. Scientists hope to use carbon dating to eventually determine the possible identities of these deceased individuals. Until then, the bone crypt remains one of England's most bizarre unsolved mysteries. 2. The Murder of Irene Gaza On April 16, 1960, 25-year-old schoolteacher and former beauty queen Irene Gaza showed up for confession at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in McAllen, Texas. She never returned home. And five days later, her body was found in a canal just outside of town. She had been struck on the head by a blunt object and raped before being suffocated to death. Shortly thereafter, a slide viewer was found in the canal. It was attached to a long cord, which may have been used to bind Gaza's hands. When the slide viewer's owner came forward to claim it, the case took a very disturbing turn. The object belonged to Father John Fight, the priest from Sacred Heart who received Gaza's confession before she disappeared. Less than a month before Gaza's murder, Father Fight had been charged with the attempted rape of another young woman inside the church. He eventually received a $500 fine after pleading no contest to aggravated assault. On the night of Gaza's disappearance, Fight's glasses were broken. Scratches also appeared on his hands, which he claimed to have received after accidentally locking himself out of his residence. Despite the suspicious evidence against fight, no one wanted to believe that a Catholic priest was responsible for such an horrific crime, and he was eventually transferred to a monastery in Missouri. Decades later, two witnesses came forward to claim that fight had confessed to them that he had murdered Gaza. However, the district attorney felt there wasn't enough evidence to file charges against fight and one of the witnesses soon passed away. Father Fight is currently in his 80s and has always maintained his innocence, but he continues to be the prime suspect in Irene Garza's murder, which remains unsolved. And number one, the miraculous survival of the West End Baptist Church Choir. On the evening of March 1, 1950, the West End Baptist Church in the small town of Beatrice, Nebraska, was completely destroyed after an explosion. The explosion itself caused by a natural gas leak wasn't a mystery, but the unlikely chain of events that saved the lives of 15 people who should have been present is nothing short of a miracle. The church's choir was scheduled to meet for practice at 7.20pm on the night of the explosion. The devoted singers were known for their punctuality, but somehow, all 15 members of the choir were late that night. As a result, none of them had yet arrived at the church when it exploded at 
The choir director and her daughter, the church pianist, had planned to show up 30 minutes early that night. However, the daughter fell asleep, causing both of them to arrive late. The church pastor and his wife wound up running late after their daughter spilled food on her dress. Two choir members didn't arrive on time because their cars wouldn't start. Other members were held up by seemingly mundane tasks, such as writing a letter, listening to a radio show and finishing homework. One even ended up running late despite living directly across the street from the church. In the end, every single member of the choir was spared from a potentially tragic event in what was either one of the most astonishing coincidences of all time or an act of divine intervention. from the hoaxes.org website. Poodle clipping as an Olympic sport. Was poodle clipping included as an official competition in the 1900 Summer Olympics? In the months preceding the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, Christopher Lyles wrote a daily Beijing countdown column for the Daily Telegraph in which he would note how many days remained until the Games and then offer an interesting Olympic fact related to that number. For instance, on March 29, 2008, with 131 days to go until the Games, Lyles observed that 131 was also the number of competitors who took part in last November's first-past-the-post US Olympic marathon trial for this year's Games. On March 31, with 129 days remaining, he reported that the LZ-129 Hindenburg was remembered for its brooding presence at the opening ceremony of the 1936 Nazi Games in Berlin, as well as for being destroyed by fire in 1937. On April 1, with 128 days remaining, Lyles delved into the curious history of Olympic poodle clipping. Here's his full column from that day. 128. The number of competitors who participated in the poodle clipping event at the 1900 Olympics in Paris. The event was held in the leafy environs of the Bois de Boulogne and it was the only occasion that it featured as an Olympic discipline. This no doubt came as a relief to Baron Pierre de Coubertin, the French founding father of the modern Olympic movement, who had opposed its inclusion, but was outvoted by his International Olympic Committee colleagues. The gold medal was won by Avril Lafoule, a 37-year-old farmer's wife from the Auvergne region of France, who successfully clipped 17 poodles in the allotted two-hour time frame. The poodle clipping competition held on April 1 was watched by 6,000 spectators, one of the larger audiences at the most chaotic Olympic Games of all. 
It's true that a number of unusual events were included in the 1900 Summer Olympics, which were the second Summer Games since the modern Olympics began in 1896. In these early years of the modern Olympics, there was a lot of uncertainty about which sports should be Olympic events, so some odd stuff got thrown into the mix. For instance, the 1904 Summer Games included competitions such as greased pole climbing and mud fighting. They were events set aside for primitive tribes from Africa and South America. And the 1900 Games, as Wikipedia notes, included ballooning, croquet, basque pelota and underwater swimming. But did the 1900 Games include poodle clipping, as Lyles reported? His column for that day was an April Fool's Day joke. In hindsight, this seems like it should have been obvious. In fact, I can't find any evidence that there's ever been a pool clipping competition anywhere. Though perhaps some dog show once held such an event, I don't know. Among the crop of April Fool hoaxes that came out in 2008, Lyle's effort initially didn't receive much attention. Most accolades that year went to the BBC and its remarkable pseudo-documentary about flying penguins, as well as to YouTube, which rickrolled all of its visitors. But Olympic poodle clipping turned out to be a slow-burning hoax, with a payoff that occurred months and even years later. This is because Lyle's poodle article began circulating online, where it was soon stripped of the context that it had been published on April 1. As a result, it quickly ascended to the status of a certifiable fact, despite the clue about gold medal winner Avril Lafoule. When the Summer Games began on August 8 of that year, such an odd fact proved to be irresistible to reporters. I'm not sure which paper first fell into the Olympic poodle clipping trap, but once one did, many others quickly followed like a row of dominoes being knocked down, one after another. Among the media outlets that reported Olympic poodle clipping as a true fact in August 2008 were The Sunday Times, The Sun, The Ottawa Citizen, China Daily, The BBC's Live Beijing blog, The Poodle and Dog blog, and The Guardian. The Telegraph soon realised what was going on, and so on August 15, Andy Hooper of The Telegraph posted an article detailing the hoax and resulting confusion. That temporarily put an end to the career of Olympic poodle clipping as a true fact. But of course, the internet never forgets anything. Factoids, whether true or false, just get temporarily ploughed under, only to reappear years later as resilient as ever. So in 2012, with another Olympic Summer Games on the horizon, reporters once again came across the remarkable story of Olympic poodle clipping and offered it to readers as weird but true news. For instance, it appeared in the Evening Standards lists of 100 things you need to know about the 2012 Olympics, as well as in the North Devon Journal. Let's get out the shears for Olympic poodle clipping. With the 2016 Games fast approaching, will we see the return of Olympic poodle clipping as a true fact? Time will tell, but I wouldn't bet against it.
and from the ancientcode.com website. Ancient maps prove Portuguese explorers were the first Europeans to find Australia. A map of the 16th century stored in the archives of a library in Los Angeles is the ultimate proof that Portuguese adventurers, not British or Dutch, were the first Europeans to discover Australia, according to a new book which details the secret discovery of the country. During the mid-1500s, Dieppe mapmakers drew intricate handmade world maps for wealthy royals. The French artists turned navigational charts into incredible pieces of art, leaving the actual exploration to explorers. They translated utilitarian nautical maps into things that wealthy people would appreciate and pay for, with fancy artwork and extremely detailed illustrations. Many people considered them valuable pieces of art rather than functional navigational charts. But most importantly, their information must have originated from somewhere. The maps were beautifully rendered, even though their exact cartographical source remains a profound mystery, feared to have been lost in time. The most important detail in these maps is a giant landmass dubbed as Java Le Grande, drawn between Antarctica and what modern-day charts would identify as Indonesia. Now, several researchers have proposed that this mysterious island is in fact the first recorded sighting of Australia by European explorers. Kenneth McIntyre's 1977 book, The Secret Discovery of Australia, suggests that the Dieppe mapmakers were in fact getting their world view from Portuguese expeditions. One of those creations in particular depicts the east coast of the mysterious Java Le Grande with place names almost exclusively to Portuguese. These details have led many to suggest that, given the vagaries of the Dieppe map source, partially French, mostly Portuguese, it was the Portuguese who were the first Europeans to spy the Australian coast. Researchers stress that in addition to the nearly exact geographical location of Java Le Grande on the Dieppe maps, there are other features which are unmistakable, specific locations of modern Australia, backing up the theory that the Portuguese were the first to discover the continent. These unmistakable details are an inlet that looks just like Botany Bay and the Abrolhos Island chain. In the book Beyond Capricorn, the author claims that the map which accurately marks geographical features on Australia's east coast in Portuguese, proves that Portuguese seafarer Christopher Dermendonca led a fleet of four ships which arrived at Botany Bay in 1522, nearly 250 years before Britain's Captain James Cook. In addition to the above-mentioned maps, there are more details which undoubtedly suggest the Portuguese were the first to discover Australia. An intricate drawing of a kangaroo on a 16th century Portuguese manuscript is another crucial piece of evidence that has led many researchers to believe the Portuguese were the first to sail to Australia. The manuscript, which is thought to date from between 1580 and 1620, appears to show a small kangaroo within the letters of its text. According to an article written by the Telegraph.co.uk, the document which contains text or music for a liturgical procession 
was recently acquired by the Les Enluminures Gallery in New York, which has valued the item at $15,000. It was previously in the possession of a rare book dealer in Portugal. And if you visit the show notes at the origins.info podcast website and click on the link to episode 124 in the Mysteries Abound podcast and then on the link to this article, you can see a picture of the kangaroo drawn in to decorate the lettering question. Certainly does look like a kangaroo. Certainly an interesting story because at school we were taught that Captain Cook sailed up the east coast of Australia and so-called discovered Australia. But like Columbus discovering the new world, Who really believes all that stuff these days anyway? The bandwidth for today's podcast is provided by TalkShoe at TalkShoe. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. And don't forget that's spelled O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. We have a Facebook page, so if you'd like to find out more about the podcast, become a friend of the podcast or whatever, facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. And I'd like to thank these people for giving the podcast a donation since last time. So it's a big thank you to Scott McClory, Gene Park, Jeff Chapman and Luke Hewson. Thank you everyone, your help is greatly appreciated. When making this podcast, I was visiting the creepypasta.com website as usual, looking for a story that interested me and I thought was good enough to include in the podcast. Not too many there this time, fairly low rating ones, so I thought, why not go back into the past and grab a story that was a good one and redo it? So, from episode 67 from the creepypasta.com, the story called Bedtime. So I hope you're not listening to this while you're trying to sleep, by any chance. Bedtime is supposed to be a happy event for a tired child. For me, it was terrifying. While some children might complain about being put to bed before they have finished watching a film or playing their favourite video game, when I was a child, nighttime was something to truly fear. Somewhere in the back of my mind, it still is. As someone who is trained in the sciences, I cannot prove that what happened to me was objectively real, but I can swear that what I experienced was genuine horror, a fear in which my life, I'm glad to say, has never been equaled. I will relate it to you all, now, as best I can. Make of it what you will, but I'll be glad just to get it off my chest. I can't remember exactly when it started, but my apprehension towards falling asleep seemed to correspond with my being moved into a room of my own. 
I was eight years old at the time, and until then I had shared a room, quite happily with my older brother. As is perfectly understandable for a boy five years my senior, my brother eventually wished for a room of his own, and as a result, I was given the room at the back of the house. It was a small, narrow, yet oddly elongated room, large enough for a bed and a couple of chest of drawers, but not much else. I couldn't really complain because even at that age I understood that we did not have a large house and I had no real cause to be disappointed, as my family was both loving and caring. It was a happy childhood during the day. A solitary window looked out onto our back garden, nothing out of the ordinary. But even during the daylight, the light which crept into that room seemed almost hesitant. As my brother was given a new bed, I was given the bunk beds which we used to share. While I was upset about sleeping on my own, I was excited at the thought of being able to sleep in the top bunk, which seemed far more adventurous to me. From the very first night I remember a strange feeling of unease creeping slowly from the back of my mind. I lay on the top bunk, staring down at my action figures and cars strewn across the green-blue carpet. As imaginary battles and adventures took place between the toys on the floor, I couldn't help but feel that my eyes were being slowly drawn towards the bottom bunk. As if something was moving in the corner of my eye. Something which did not wish to be seen. The bunk was empty, impeccably made, with a dark blue blanket tucked in neatly, partially covering two rather bland white pillows. I didn't think anything of it at the time. I was a child, and the noise slipping under my door from my parents' television bathed me in a warm sense of safety and well-being. I fell asleep. When you awaken from a deep sleep to something moving or stirring, it can take a few moments for you to truly understand what is happening. The fog of sleep hangs over your eyes and ears, even when lucid. Something was moving. There was no doubt about that. At first I wasn't sure what it was. Everything was dark, almost pitch black. But there was enough light creeping in from outside to outline that narrowly suffocating room. Two thoughts appeared in my mind almost simultaneously. The first was that my parents were in bed because the rest of the house lay both in darkness and silence. The second thought turned to the noise a noise which had obviously woken me. As the last cobwebs of sleep withered from my mind, the noise took on a more familiar form. Sometimes the simplest of sounds can be the most unnerving. A cold wind whistling through a tree outside, a neighbour's footsteps uncomfortably close, or in this case, the simple sound of bedsheets rustling in the dark. That was it. The bedsheets rustling in the dark as if some disturbed sleeper was attempting to get too comfortable in the bottom bunk. I lay there in disbelief, thinking that noise was either my imagination or perhaps just my pet cat finding somewhere comfortable to spend the night. It was then that I noticed my door, shut as it had been as I'd fallen asleep. Perhaps my mum had checked in on me and the cat had sneaked into my room then. Yes, that must have been it. I turned to face the wall, closing my eyes in the vain hope that I could fall back to sleep. 
As I moved, the rustling noise from underneath me ceased. I thought that I must have disturbed my cat, but quickly I realised that the visitor in the bottom bunk was much less mundane than my pet trying to sleep, and much more sinister. As if alerted to and disgruntled by my presence, the disturbed sleeper began to toss and turn violently like a child having a tantrum in their bed. I could hear the sheets twist and turn with increasing ferocity. Fear then gripped me, not like the subtle sense of unease I had experienced early, but now potent and terrifying. My heart raced as my eyes panicked, scanning the almost impenetrable darkness. I let out a cry. As most young boys do, I instinctively shouted on my mother. I could hear something stir on the other side of the house. But as I began to breathe a sigh of relief that my parents were coming to save me, the bunk bed started to shake violently, as if gripped by an earthquake, scraping against the wall. I could hear the sheets below me thrashing around as if tormented by malice. I did not want to jump down to safety, as I feared the thing in the bottom bunk would reach out and grab me, pulling me into the darkness. So I stayed there, white knuckles clenching my own blanket like a shroud of protection. The weight seemed like an eternity. The door finally and thankfully burst open, and I lay bathed in light, while the bottom bunk, the resting place of my unwanted visitor, lay empty and peaceful. I cried and my mother consoled me. Tears of fear followed by relief streamed down my face. Yet through all of the horror and relief, I did not tell her why I was so upset. I cannot explain it, but it was as though whatever had been in that bunk would return, even if I so much as spoke of it, or uttered a single syllable of its existence. Whether that was the truth, I do not know. But as a child, I felt as if that unseen menace remained close, listening. My mother lay in the empty bunk, promising to stay there until morning. Eventually my anxiety diminished, tiredness pushed me back towards sleep. But I remained restless, waking several times momentarily to the sound of rustling bedsheets. I remember the next day wanting to go anywhere, be anywhere, but in that narrow, suffocating room. It was a Saturday and I played outside, quite happily with my friends. Although our house was not large, we were lucky to have a long sloping garden in the back. We played there often, as much of it was overgrown and we could hide in the bushes, climb in the huge sycamore tree which towered above all else, and easily imagine ourselves in the throes of a grand adventure, in some untamed, exotic land. As fun as it all was, occasionally my eye would turn to that small window, ordinary, slight and innocuous, but for me that thin boundary was a looking glass into a strange cold pocket of dread. Outside the lush green surroundings of our garden, filled with the smiling faces of my friends, could not extinguish the creeping feeling clawing its way up my spine, each hair standing on end. The feeling of something in that room, watching me play, waiting for the night when I would be alone, eagerly filled with hate. It may sound strange to you, but by the time my parents ushered me back into that room for the night, I said nothing. I didn't protest. I didn't even make an excuse as to why I couldn't sleep there. I simply 
and sullenly walked into that room, climbed the few steps into the top bunk, and then waited. As an adult, I would be telling everyone about my experience, but even at that age, I felt almost silly to be talking about something which I really had no evidence for. I would be lying, however, if I said this was my primary reason. I still felt that this thing would be enraged if I so much as spoke of it. It's funny how certain words can remain hidden from your mind, no matter how blatant or obvious they are. One word came to me that second night, lying there in the darkness alone, frightened, aware of a rotten change in the atmosphere, a thickening of the air as if something had displaced it. As I heard the first casual twists of the bedsheets below, the first anxious increase of my heartbeat at the realisation that something was once again in the bottom bunk. That word, a word which had been sent into exile, filtered up through my consciousness, free of all repression, gasping for air, screaming, itching, and carving itself into my mind. Ghost. As this thought came to me, I noticed that my unwelcome visitor had ceased moving. The bedsheets lay calm and dormant, but they had been replaced by something far more hideous. A slow, rhythmic, rasping breath heaved and escaped from the thing below. I could imagine its chest rising and falling with each sordid, wheezing and garbled breath. I shuddered and hoped beyond all hope that it would leave without occurrence. The house lay as it had the previous night, in a thick blanket of darkness. Silence prevailed, all but for the perverted breath of my, as yet, unseen bunkmate. I lay there terrified. I just wanted this thing to go, to leave me alone. What did it want? Then something unmistakably chilling transpired. It moved. It moved in a way different from before. When it threw itself around in the bottom bunk, it seemed unrestrained, without purpose, almost animalistic. This movement, however, was driven by awareness, with purpose, with a goal in mind. For that thing lying there in the darkness, that thing which seemed intent on terrorising a young boy, calmly and nonchalantly sat up. Its laboured breathing had become louder, and now only a mattress and a few flimsy wooden slats separated my body from the unearthly breath below. I lay there, my eyes filled with tears. A fear which mere words cannot relate to you or anyone else coursed through my veins. I would not have believed that this fear could have been heightened, but I was wrong. I imagined what this thing would look like, sitting there, listening from below my mattress, hoping to catch the slightest hint that I was awake. Imagination then turned to an unnerving reality. It began to touch the wooden slats which my mattress sat on. It seemed to caress them carefully, running what I imagined to be fingers and hands across the surface of the wood. Then with great force it prodded angrily between the two slats into the mattress. Even through the padding, it felt as though someone had viciously stuck their fingers into my side. I let out an almighty cry, and the wheezing, shaking and moving thing in the bunk below replied in kind by violently vibrating the bunk as it had done the night before. Small flakes of paint powdered onto my blanket from the wall as the frame of the bed scraped along it, backwards and forwards. Once again I was bathed in light and there stood my mother, 
loving, caring as she always was, with a comforting hug and calming words which eventually subdued my hysteria. Of course she asked me what was wrong, but I could not say. I dared not say. I simply said one word over and over and over again. Nightmare. This pattern of events continued for weeks, if not months. Night after night I would awaken to the sound of rustling sheets. Each time I would scream so as not to provide this abomination with time to prod and feel for me. With each cry the bed would shake violently, stopping with the arrival of my mother, who would spend the rest of the night in the bottom bunk, seemingly unaware of the sinister force torturing her son nightly. Along the way I managed to feign illness a few times and come up with other less than truthful reasons for sleeping in my parents' bed, but more often than not I would be alone for the first few hours of each night in that place. The room where the light from outside did not sit right, alone with that thing. With time you can become desensitised to almost anything, no matter how horrific. I had come to realise that, for whatever reason, this thing could not harm me when my mother was present. I am sure the same would have been said for my father, but as loving as he was, waking him from sleep was almost impossible. After a few months I had grown accustomed to my nightly visitor. Do not mistake this for some unearthly friendship. I detested the thing. I still feared it greatly as I could almost sense its desires and its personality, if you could call it that. One filled with a perverted and twisted hatred, yet longing for me, of perhaps all things. My greatest fears were realised in the winter. The days grew short and the longer nights merely provided this wretch with more opportunities. It was a difficult time for my family. My grandmother, a wonderfully kind and gentle woman, had deteriorated greatly since the death of my grandfather. My mother was trying her best to keep her in the community as long as possible. However, dementia is a cruel and degenerative illness, robbing a person of their memories, one day at a time. Soon she recognised none of us, and it became clear that she would need to be moved from my house to a nursing home. Before she could be moved, my grandmother had a particularly difficult few nights, and my mother decided that she would stay with her. As much as I loved my grandmother, and felt nothing but anguish at her illness, to this day I feel guilty that my first thoughts were not of her, but of what my nightly visitor may do, should it become aware of my mother's absence. Her presence being the one thing which I was sure was protecting me from the full horror of this thing's reach. I rushed home from school that day and immediately wrenched the bedsheets and mattress from the lower bunk, removing all of the slats and placing an old desk, a chest of drawers and some chairs which were kept in a cupboard where the bottom bunk used to be. I told my father I was making an office, which he found adorable, but I would be damned if I'd give that thing a place to sleep for one more night. As darkness approached, I lay there knowing my mother was not in the house. I did not know what to do. My only impulse was to sneak into her jewellery box and take a small family crucifix which I had seen there before. While my family were not very religious, at that age I still believed in God and hoped that somehow this would protect me. 
Although fearful and anxious while gripping the crucifix under my pillow tightly in one hand, sleep eventually came as I drifted off to dream. I hoped that I would awaken in the morning without incidents. Unfortunately, that night was the most terrifying of all. I woke gradually. The room was once again dark. As my eyes adjusted, I could gradually make out the window and the door and the walls, some toys on a shelf and, even to this day, I shudder to think of it, for there was no noise, no rustling of sheets, no movement at all. The room felt lifeless, lifeless, yet not empty. The nightly visitor, that unwelcome, wheezing, hateful thing which had terrorised me night after night, was not in the bottom bunk. It was in my bed. I opened my mouth to scream, but nothing came out. Utter terror had shaken the very sound from my voice. I lay motionless. If I could not scream, I did not want to let it know I was awake. I had not yet seen it. I could only feel it. It was obscured under my blanket. I could see its outline and I could feel its presence. But I dared not look. The weight of it pressed down on top of me, a sensation I will never forget. When I say that hours passed, I do not exaggerate. Laying there motionless in the darkness, I was every bit a scared and frightened young boy. If it had been during the summer months, it would have been light by then. But the grasp of winter is long and unrelenting and I knew it would be hours before the sunrise, a sunrise which I yearned for. I was a timid child by nature, but I reached a breaking point, a moment where I could wait no more, where I could survive under this intimately deviant abomination no longer. Fear can sometimes wear you out, make you threadbare, a shell of nerves leaving only the slightest trace of you behind. I had to get out of that bed, Then I remembered the crucifix. My hand still lay underneath the pillow, but it was empty. I slowly moved my wrist around to find it, minimising as best I could the sound and vibrations caused, but it could not be found. I had either knocked it off the top bunk, or it had, I could not even bear to think of it, been taken from my hand. Without the crucifix, I lost any sense of hope. Even at such a young age, you can be acutely aware of what death is, and intensely frightened of it. I knew I was going to die in that bed if I lay there, dormant, passive, doing nothing. I had to leave that room behind, but how? Should I leap from the bed and hope that I could make it to the door? What if it's faster than me? Or should I slowly slip out of that top bunk, hoping not to disturb my uncanny bedfellow? Realising that it had not stirred when I moved, trying to find the crucifix, I began to have the strangest of thoughts. What if it was asleep? It hadn't so much as breathed since I had woken up. Perhaps it was resting, believing that it had finally got me, that I was finally in its grasp. Or perhaps it was toying with me. After all, it had been doing just that for countless nights, and now with me under it, pinned against my mattress with no mother to protect me. Maybe it was holding off, savouring its victory until the last possible moment, like a wild animal savouring its prey. I tried to breathe as shallowly as possible, and mustering every ounce of courage I could, I reached over slowly with my right hand and began to peel the blanket off me. 
What I found under those covers almost stopped my heart. I did not see it, but as my hand moved the blanket, it brushed against something. Something smooth and cold. Something which felt unmistakably like a gaunt hand. I held my breath in terror, as I was sure it must now have known that I was awake. Nothing. It did not stir. It felt dead. After a few moments, I placed my hand carefully further down the blanket and felt a thin, poorly formed forearm. My confidence and almost twisted sense of curiosity grew as I moved down further to a disproportionately larger bicep muscle. The arm was outstretched, lying across my chest, with the hand resting on my left shoulder as if it had grabbed me in my sleep. I realised that I would have to move this cadaverous appendage if I even so much as hoped to escape its grasp. For some reason the feeling of torn, ragged clothing on the shoulder of this nighttime invader stopped me in my tracks. Fear once again swelled in my stomach and in my chest as I recoiled my hand in disgust at the touch of straggled, oily hair. I could not bring myself to touch its face, although I wonder to this very day what it would have felt like. Dear God, it moved. It moved. It was subtle, but its grip on my shoulder and across my body strengthened. No tears came, but God, how I wanted to cry. As its hand and arm slowly coiled around me, my right leg brushed along the cool wall which the bed lay against. Of all that happened to me in that room, this was the strangest. I realised that this clutching, rancid thing which drew great delight from violating a young boy's bed was not entirely on top of me. It was sticking out from the wall, like a spider striking from its lair. Suddenly its grip moved from a slowly tightening to a sudden squeeze. It pulled and clawed at my clothes, as if frightened that the opportunity would soon pass. I fought against it, but its emaciated arm was too strong for me. Its head rose up, writhing and contorting, under the blanket. I now realised where it was taking me, into the wall. I fought for my dear life. I cried, and suddenly my voice returned to me, yelling, screaming, but no one came. Then I realised why it was so eager to suddenly strike, why this thing had to have me now. Through my window, that window which seemed to represent so much malice from outside, streaked hope, the first rays of sunshine. I struggled further knowing that if I could just hold on, it would soon be gone. As I fought for my life, the unearthly parasite shifted, slowly pulling itself up my chest, its head now poking out from under the blanket, wheezing, coughing, rasping. I do not remember its features. I simply remember its breath against my face, foul and as cold as ice. As the sun broke over the horizon, that dark place, that suffocating room of contempt, was washed, bathed in sunlight. I passed out as its scrawny fingers encircled my neck, squeezing the very life from me. I awoke to my father offering to make me some breakfast. A wonderful sight indeed. I had survived the most horrible experience of my life until then, and now. 
I moved the bed away from the wall, leaving behind the furniture I had believed would stop that thing from taking a bed. Little did I think that it would try to take mine and me. Weeks passed without incidents, yet on one cold, frostbitten night, I awoke to the sound of the furniture where the bunk beds used to be, vibrating violently. In a moment it passed. I lay there sure I could hear a distant wheezing coming from deep within the wall, finally fading into the distance. I have never told anyone this story before. To this day I still break out in a cold sweat at the sound of bedsheets rustling in the night or a wheeze brought on by a common cold and I certainly never sleep with the bed against a wall. Call it superstition if you will, but as I said, I cannot discount conventional explanations such as sleep paralysis, hallucination or that of an overactive imagination. But what I can say is this. The following year I was given a larger room on the other side of the house and my parents took that strangely suffocating elongated place as their bedroom. They said they didn't need a large room, just one big enough for a bed and a few things. They lasted ten days. We moved on the 11th. And that story is from Michael Whitehouse. Good night. Sleep tight, everyone. If you can. Bye for now.